Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Paul Nepper, and today we'll be talking to David Ostrowski about his book, Pro Sports in 1993, a signature season in football, basketball, hockey, and baseball. This is David's second book. His first book is titled Game Over or Game On, How Pro Athletes Leave Sports and Enjoy the Game of Life. David, welcome to the show. Well, Paul, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I wonder if you could start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself, you know, where you're from, uh, what kind of work you do, where you went to school, those kind of things. Yeah, sure. So um, I've lived in the Boston area my entire life. Um, As I was talking to you before, I grew up in Newton, which is a suburb just outside of Boston. And then about a decade or or so, I moved farther west, um, eight miles out to Natick. Um, And yeah, I uh, went to Brandeis. And I uh, did a lot of sports journalism there. I Once I um, graduated, I was writing for several uh, publications, including the AP uh, Bureau in Boston, the Jewish Advocate, and uh, the Metro West Daily News. Uh, several years back, I <clears throat> excuse me, published my first sports book, uh, Game Over, Game On. And this was my second book, uh, Pro Sports in 1993, um, and published by McFarland and Company. And it, it came out in November. Um, so, yeah. And I, I know you talk about this in, in the introduction, but for our listeners, can you just kind of explain what, what was special about 1993 in sports for you personally and just in general, what, what made it exciting year in sports? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. And it's obviously one that's hard to answer in just one short uh, statement. But I think for me personally, you know, Paul, I... I'm 36 years old, so in 93, I was nine. Um, growing up in Boston, I always tell you know, the teams were, it's, it couldn't have been more different from what it was like today. Um, the teams were pretty lousy for the most part. Patriots were really bad. The Celtics were not very good. This was post-Larry Bird. Um, the Red Sox were at best mediocre, and then the Bruins were, were decent. Um, so for me, I think as I was kind of becoming this massive sports fan, a lot of my strongest and fondest memories of that time did not involve Boston sports. You know, they were the Cowboys or Jordan's Bulls or, you know, the Blue Jays, Atlanta Braves, et cetera. Um, So I think for me, you know, when I look back on my sports fandom career, if you will, um, I really think that year in particular had nothing to do with Boston, um, which I maybe partially explains why I'm such a big fan of all the different teams now in terms of following them, not necessarily rooting, but I never really felt that I was such a um, a fan so tied to to Boston sports per se, um, even though those are where my rooting interest lies. And then in terms of your other question, why it's such a pivotal year, I, I don't think it's just a personal thing. I really think, you know, when you look at the four major sports, um, it really was a monumental year. I think with baseball, when you look at what happened the year after, there was no World Series. There was no postseason. Um, of course, that was because of the strike. So 93 was the last year before there were major you know, seismic changes in the game in terms of an extended, expanded playoff bracket. And, 
And like I said, um, an entire season, which wouldn't be the case for a couple of years. Um, in basketball, you know, you have what I consider to be probably the most eventful year in Michael Jordan's life. Um, not only does he have the three-peat, but he's his, loses his father, uh, and then he goes and he leaves the game of basketball, and then goes on and tries baseball. So in terms of what I consider the greatest player ever, I think that was probably one of, if not the most interesting years in his life. And of course, you know, when you look at the 90s and really just the late 20th century, you know, the Bulls dynasty is kind of like, you know, comes to mind as really being supreme then. And I, I really do believe, you know, that was when they were at the apex. And then in football, probably the most important franchise in the NFL, if not all of sports, is the Dallas Cowboys. And they were, um, they had this kind of renaissance uh, then. And when you look at it in, in context, they have not been obviously nearly as um, relevant, let's say, since the mid-90s. And then lastly, in hockey, um, very simple, there has not been a Canadian team that's won the Cup since 93, which is fairly ironic when you consider that the sport was created in Canada. Half the teams are in Canada, and that's the country that's most in love with the sport. So very long answer. You know, that's why I thought this year, every sports year is important, special, whatever, but I really thought this year in particular was, you know, historic for some of those reasons. Right. And I wonder about, so regarding the scope of the book, why, you know, I think of that year, I think of, um, I'm a, I'm a, I went to university of Michigan, so I, I I'm a big, I, after that, but you know, that was a big year. Uh, the fab five, Chris Weber's timeout, all that. Um, why do you just decide to stick with the four major sports and, and just the four major professional sports? That's a really good question. Um, I was very much thinking about, um, going into tennis, of course, um, Tina Hingis, there was that, uh, terrible attack and, um, that was a major story. Um, I'm sure Monica Sellis, excuse me. Right. Shows you how much that, that was that, y- that was that year. I was yeah, trying to Monica yeah. Sellis. Right. Um, probably tell not a huge tennis fan. And I w- that was happened in early May. She was attacked in Germany. Um, and I was thinking very hard about writing about that. Um, just cause I thought it was a very important part of the year. Um, and I think it, the aftermath of that was important because what it did was it, you know, it really kind of changed the dynamic between fans and, you know, spectators and athletes. I ultimately didn't write about it because um, I really st- stuck with North America, um, with America and Canada, the four you know major sports. Um, and I think McFarland actually they kind of advised me to stick with that too, just because you know it was such a broad topic in a sense, looking at one whole year of sports um, that I felt like having it focused on just again the four major North American sports was good. And in terms of college, you know, I I vaguely mentioned that incident with Chris Weber in the timeout in the Superdome and the final four only because um, it was against Jordan, you know, Michael Jordan's alma mater, UNC, uh, who went on to, um, you know, of course, win the championship um, that spring, if I'm not mistaken. But, you know, I think, um, again, just to kind of have a sharper focus a little bit on just professional sports. Um, but there were some certainly interesting stories in college. Charlie Ward at FSU uh, was a big right. story then. But yeah, again, just, I guess, to have a little sharper focus. Sure. Um, so you start the book with uh, this quarterback controversy in San Francisco, and uh, I am old enough to remember this pretty well, um, between Joe Montana and, and Steve Young. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, 
So it's funny, being nine years old in 93, my biggest memory or my only memories of Joe Montana were in the Kansas City Chiefs uniform. Um, but of course, you know, it's like he won four Super Bowls with San Francisco. And um, I think what was so interesting was it was probably the biggest um, positional rivalry for quarterbacks ever because, I mean, Steve Young's a Hall of Famer, right? And and he was the um, successor to Montana. And a lot of times, like when it's a Jimmy Garoppolo taking the place of um, from Brady, you know, it's like the guy waiting in the wings is not, you know, a future Hall of Famer, right? And I mean, obviously, you know, with Brett Favre and Aaron Rodgers, it's kind of more like the, you know, Montana Young comparison. But it's pretty rare that the guy succeeding a legend is going to be a legend himself. So I really felt like that was an important story that year. But I think the thing about it that I found the most interesting was the fact that basically Montana didn't play at all in 91 or 92. He suffered some devastating injuries at the end of the 1990 NFC Championship game, courtesy of Leonard Marshall, and the 49ers were playing the Giants. So he didn't play at all for two years. And uh, he was 37, so, you know, not ancient. Um, still had a little time left compared to Brady. He's obviously very, very young. So I guess I found that interesting, just again, the fact that he was off for two years, um, which is a long, long time. Um, and part of that was because I think in 92, in the early fall, by around October, he would have been able to come back. But Young was having an MVP caliber season and did wind up uh, winning the MVP. So I think, you know, again, the fact that he was gone for two years and also the fact that they, it was not a bitter rivalry. Um, I mean, they liked each other. They were fairly close. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I just thought that, again, the fact that Young emerged, you know, he was Young got drafted in the mid 80s. Um, he was in the CFL, excuse me, in the uh, USFL for a little bit. So it's like he waited, you know, three, four, five years. Um, so I just thought that dynamic was very interesting. Yeah. And I, I love the, you know, how you talk about in the in the book, how, uh, as you as you just noticed, Steve Young won MVP. And yet the, the 49ers fans were still pining for Montana, um, which was just fascinating. I was trying to think of, 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 analog, of an analogous situation. And the Favre, the Favre, the Favre Rogers thing, of course. But, um, but as you said, the injury made it so unique. You know, I, I thought maybe, you know, when I thought of when Peyton left Indianapolis, you know, he had been out that whole year with his neck injury and then and they were going to draft Andrew Luck, who was considered a, a can't miss guy, but but uh, of course, Luck and Peyton never played together like like Young and and Montana did, and so yeah, that was fascinating. And then of course, Montana led the Chiefs to the FC Championship that ga- that year. Um, he went on to the Chiefs and he he led them to the championship game, and they lost to the Bills. Um, but really, the most exciting the most exciting game of that playoff, certainly on the AFC side and really on any side, was was the Bills. Uh, the Bills Oilers and that tremendous comeback. Can you talk about that game a little bit? Yeah, this was, um, this was the divisional round. So this was at the old Astrodome. Um, it was a Sunday night MLK weekend. So I think a lot of people were tuned in, uh, cause most people didn't have work or school the next day. And yeah, I mean, the, uh, the chiefs were down, um, late in the game by, I want to say around, uh, 10 points and, and they came back and, you know, this was, um, this was big because they had just beaten the Steelers the prior weekend um, against Bill Cower, uh, Bill Cower coach team. And, and Cower was kind of like the understudy to Marty Schottenheimer, who was the Chiefs coach 
um, in 93. And of course, he just actually passed away. But, you know, this game against Houston was, um, it was a big win for them. Um, Warren Moon was the quarterback for Houston. Um, he had another stellar season. I mean, they were pretty big underdogs going in. I want to say it was a touchdown or even maybe 10 points, which is pretty significant um, in a uh, in a playoff game. And yeah, Montana had a, I mean, just a, another classic comeback, I guess, you know, that was kind of the, you know, the story at the end of the day. Um, Marcus Allens had the game-winning touchdown to seal it. And I just think there was a lot of talk before the game out of Houston that they were really going to lay a bruising on Montana. And um, he got beat up pretty good in the first half, but then in the second half, you know, in, in his kind of classic style, he came back. And I guess it was probably, in hindsight, the, the last um, highlight of his career. You know, and, and I say that because in 93, the final game he played was the next week in Buffalo. And uh, it did not go well for him. He, You know, he got sidelined in the early in the second half with a concussion. He didn't play again. Um, and then in 94, he did come back and they went nine and seven. But I believe they lost in the wild card round to... Miami. So I guess in hindsight, it was probably the last hurrah. He was on the cover of SI that week after the Houston game. It was, I would say, the last major highlight of his career. Um, and then you have, of course, the Bills went on. Um, the Bills went on to play the Super Bowl that year, and they lost to the Cowboys. It was the third year, third of four years in a row that they lost. Um, and that Cowboys team was just, they were stacked. And it was really, I think of that team, that was kind of the last super team before like free agency really changed the NFL. Um, and of course, that team was assembled in large part by the legendary Herschel Walker trade. So for those who are too young to recall, can you uh, explain what went down with the Herschel Walker trade? Yeah, I'll kind of give you kind of like the, the skinny on it. I'll try it. It was pretty complex. Um, so in 1989, Jimmy Johnson's rookie year coaching the Cowboys, Cowboys are atrocious. They end up going one in 15. Um, they're, they're really bad. He comes over, right? He's been coaching at Oklahoma state and Miami and had a lot of success. Uh, it, it does not go well in Dallas. Um, this is before they got Emmett Smith, which we'll get to in a second, but you know, they have a rookie quarterback, Troy Aikman, um, and, and they're not very good. So they're 0 and four and it's early October and really they're only a established offensive star is Herschel Walker, former Georgia standout. And he trades him. And um, he trades him to the Minnesota Vikings, who believe they're one player away from winning a Super Bowl. And that obviously didn't work out. But in a nutshell, what happens is he trades him for a bunch of draft picks and then players whom he cuts because there are conditional draft picks associated with those players. So long and short of it is because of Herschel Walker's trade, they're able to draft, you know, Emmett Smith, Darren Woodson, Russell Maryland, some other players too down the line. Kevin Smith, I believe, a cornerback. And it turns out in a pretty short amount of time, as in like two years from then, they're a legit Super Bowl contender. And then, of course, in 92, they have this phenomenal year. They go 13-3 and and they romp the, bowl, uh, the Bills in the Super Bowl. And then the next year they go back to back. But the cornerstone for that, those mid to early to mid-90s, Cowboys teams was trading Herschel Walker. And it kind of makes sense when, you know, when you think about it and today, this happens all the time in baseball when a team is out of it by, you know, early mid July, whatever, and the deadline's coming up and they trade their star player and, and they get in back, you know, a whole return, right. Of minor league prospects. But back then in the NFL, this was just not something that people did, you know, that coaches, general managers have the foresight of doing. Um, 
because he was literally their, you know, their own, their franchise player. Right. I mean, it was a bold move. You know, it was, they were a terrible team and they became even worse, you know, trading him. I, they had a running back named Daryl Clack who took over. Um, and in the next year, they, they improved a little bit. Um, and then it was in two years that they went 11 and five. And then eventually, like I said, won the two Super Bowls. Right. And one of the fa- fascinating dynamics which you discuss in the book with, with those with those Cowboys teams was the relationship between Jerry Jones and Jimmy Johnson. Um, what what was that like? What was that relationship like? Well, it's really interesting because they played together at the University of Arkansas when they were you know college uh, football teammates right back in the sixties, and they roomed together. But that was only because their last names were were so close. They weren't all that friendly and call. I mean, I shouldn't say that they weren't close friends. You know, I think they were friendly. They knew each other or whatever. Obviously they got along fine. Um, but then, yeah, I mean, Jerry Jones, you know, makes a whole fortune in the oil industry. And um, I think Jimmy Johnson wants this new challenge after having led Miami to a national championship in 1987. And then on top of that, it was kind of time for Tom Landry, the legendary and only Cowboys coach ever to step down. He was kind of, he had lost his fastball a little bit and, you know, um, he gets let go and then Johnson comes in and, you know, as I kind of point out in the book, some of the players really didn't think he had the right persona for the NFL. They thought he was a great college coach, didn't necessarily buy into what he could do um, in the NFL. I mean, he was a hard coach. I mean, he was not the easiest guy to play for. And yeah, in terms of the relationship, um, I think he eventually thought that Jerry, you know, was kind of, um, as is often the case for NFL owners, it's a little meddling, you know, he would kind of come down to the sidelines a lot. He would come into the locker room and bring, you know, whatever celebrities he had with him, whether it was a prince from Saudi Arabia or, you know, who knows. Um, And I think Jerry thought that, you know, um, Jimmy kind of was dismissive and didn't really appreciate the opportunity he had. And, you know, it's like crazy, but like after the 93 season, after their back-to-back Super Bowls, you know, they part ways and it's like, it makes no sense because, Jimmy Johnson is still a middle-aged man. He hasn't been coaching in the NFL that long. And like, you know, because they had this clash of egos, you know, who knows how many Super Bowls they could have won. Cowboys do win one two years later under Barry Switzer, but that's of course it. Right. All right. We'll switch gears a little bit, move on to baseball. Um, I told you before we came on the air here that I I loved the, I loved the detail you went into and to Kevin Yards. Um, because frankly, I'd forgotten what a big deal it was. And it really brought me back to that time in my life. And uh, I wonder if you could tell the listeners a little bit about, so the back, the, you know, the way you work it in the, the all-star game is played in Camden Yards in 1993 and was a huge event because Camden Yards had become this, you know, a, a big deal. And uh, well, I'll leave that up to you. Talk, can you talk a little bit about Camden Yards and, and uh, its significance at the time? Yeah, no, I think this was actually, Paul, one of the, the probably the chapter I was most excited to writing about. I'm just as a massive baseball fan. And um, to be clear, the Camden Yards not open in 93. It did open in 92. Um, that was the first year, but the All-Star game was in 93. So this was for MLB Network. I mean, yes, ESPN was around, but there weren't many highlights. There weren't games streaming all the time. So for many fans, the night of July 13th, 93, this was the first time they got to lay eyes in this ballpark. So why was it important? I mean, for those who are older than, you know, 35 and older, remember that in this, in the 80s and the early 90s, 
the ballparks in many National League cities and even in some American League cities were not uh, impressive at all. You know, in San Diego, San Francisco and Pittsburgh, um, they were just dull. Um, they had no imagination. They were multi-purpose facilities that housed football teams, rock concerts, um, speeches from politicians. I mean, they, baseball was just one activity of many there. And it was really insulting to the game, you know, when you think about it. Um, and then I think in the late 80s, there was Baltimore had a uh, ballpark that was north of the city, Memorial Stadium, that the um, the Baltimore Colts had used to play in when they were the Baltimore Colts. Um, and again, it was like it was drab. It was uniform dimensions, just not very exciting. Right. So in, anyway, in the late 80s, uh, Lucina, Larry Lucino, who was um, president of the Baltimore Orioles and HOK Sports, which was the um, organization used to design the ballpark, you know, they had this idea of um, a retro style field and it was kind of a throwback. It was meant to be a throwback to the old ballparks, like an Ebbets Field or Polo Grounds, um, you know, where you don't have uniform. Um, well, three things, I guess. You don't have uniform dimensions. It's located in the city, which is a huge, huge, huge thing. And then it's only for baseball. And um, anyways, it opened in 92. And, you know, I think there was a lot of hesitation. Um, you know, people were like, why do you need to do this in Baltimore? You know, why do you want to have a warehouse, um, you know, like, like, why do you need this? You know, like you already have a ballpark. And um, I don't know, I, I guess it was such a big deal because I think for what came after it, where you've literally had probably over 20 teams have ballparks in the downtown area of their respective cities and facilities that are only for baseball. And again, like I said, have some character to them. Um, so gone is like the Metrodome and, and, you know, Minnesota, which was really had like zero character, right? It was this like big indoor bubble. And it's important. I mean, it's not just important for the fans, but for the players too. And, and even for just the audience watching the game on television. And um, yeah, I mean, I just can't stress enough how maybe, you know, now people take Camden Yards for granted. The attendance has been dreadful over the past decade there. Okay. Um, the team is not for the exception of maybe a couple years back in 012, 013, the team has been pretty lousy. Um, so they have awful, awful attendance figures. But in the early to mid nineties, when it opened, it was like this, you know, eighth wonder of the world. Right. And, um, yeah, I, I just think now, you know, ballparks in San Diego, San Francisco, uh, Minnesota, Pittsburgh, those are kind of the ballparks you think of when they're like, oh, wow, all these, you know, cool features and, you know, they're modern, whatever. And, but it, Baltimore was the first one. And, uh, compared to what it was coming from, that's what made it so revolutionary. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, as I told you before, it really, you know, my father and I took a, a road trip to Baltimore. It was like, oh, you have to see Camden Yards. It was like the, the shiny new thing. And it was yeah. it was beautiful because it kind of captured the history of the game with the, you know, different dimensions, as you said, kind of based on Ebbets Field, um, but with modern features. And um, it, it was really, it was different. It was really different at the time. Um, and it was different also... Oh, Go I'm ahead. Sorry. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, you know, they've made adjustments to it also. Like um, when it opened up, there weren't all the features that have unique. There wasn't brick behind home plate. Now there is brick. You know, there was just padding. Um, I mean, they've done things to, to spruce it up and also even make it a little more, you know, different, right, from some of the other, you know, prototypical ballparks that were around earlier. Um, right. and, and now you get very creative designs. Um, but I think a lot of ballparks have adopted features based on Camden Yards. Yeah. Um, 
the other thing that really brought me back from that all-star weekend was, was Ken Griffey Jr. And uh, again, one of those things that I don't know that people who didn't live through it can really understand what a big deal Ken Griffey Jr. was. I mean, he was the guy and even, you know, beyond baseball, I think, I think baseball was bigger in the national consciousness than in general in the sports world. And, and he was just, he was the guy. And, uh, and I remember he hit that home run in the, in the home run contest. And, and, you know, no one, no one remembers that he didn't win the home. I, I was, I but forgot, I was surprised when I read your book that he didn't win the home run derby because that's, that's all you remember from that home run contest. That's certainly all anybody was talking about the next day at, uh, you know, was Griffey's shot. Um, so for, so for those that, that weren't, you know, around at that time, what, what was, what was Griffey like? What was the aura around Craig Ken Griffey Jr.? Um, I think, you know, for young millennials, it's, um, it's hard to understand just how impactful he was in the game because his career, let's be honest, was very front loaded, right? The first half of the career was in Seattle, um, where he put up his hall of fame numbers. And then the second half was in Cincinnati where he was injured and just, quite frankly, you know, it was a big letdown compared to the years in Seattle. But yeah, I mean, for sports fans, you know, growing up in the 90s, um, I mean, he was, for all intents and purposes, the Michael Jordan of baseball, I guess you could say. Um, didn't win the championships, but in terms of, you know, the the commercial endorsements um, with Nintendo and, you know, and uh, I can't even remember the, the line of footwear, but, you know, yeah, I mean, he was... Um, he was the guy. And I, I think, you know, one of the things that's really hurting the sport today is there just aren't these recognizable stars like a Ken Griffey Jr. or even a Barry Bonds or Mike Piazza, Frank Thomas, um, what have you, you know, and and that really does hurt the game. But yeah, he, you know, he was cool. He was um, hip. He, he wore his hat backwards. And, and this particular, uh, you know, he had the ubiquitous smile and he was just, um, and, you know, and the And the most beautiful swing you've ever seen. You know, five tool that combination of speed and, and power is is so rare and I, I truly believe had he not gone and injured in the uh, early 2000s in Cincinnati he might be in not only in the conversation but almost like hands down the greatest player ever I mean I think you're talking about you know a guy who hits 800 home runs or more um, you know and wins the gold gloves and, and more all-star games but you know obviously it, it didn't work out just because of the injuries but and of course, there were never really any accusations, you know, of uh, performance enhancing drugs surrounding him, which was not true for many of the stars in the 90s. So, you know, all in all, when you look at the hindsight, um, you know, he really was this larger than life figure. And yeah, that day in, in Baltimore, he did something that's never been done before, which is on Utah Street, which is behind, you know, the warehouse and right field. There's this kind of, I don't know what you call it, pavilion, I guess, where fans hang out and he hit the warehouse. And because of the aerodynamics, um, even with like a guy like a Chris Davis playing in Baltimore for all those years, it's never been done. You know, dozens of balls have plopped down on the street. But, you know, the fact that he nailed the uh, pillar there was unprecedented and has never, like I said, done before. So, yeah, it was just, again, like a really cool day for baseball, I guess is how I describe it. And then, you know, you put it in context the year, the prior year, you had, I mean, first of all, the players during the 94 All-Star game were threatening to boycott the game because they were so upset with ownership and and there was talk you know everyone knew the work stoppage was inevitable so it was really not a very festive atmosphere at the 94 game which was far from the case you know obviously in 93 yeah i i 
And I'll just add an anecdote for your book. I hope spoiler alert, but uh, you talk about the book how Ken Griffey, uh, how Michael Jordan goes up to Ken Griffey Jr. and asks him for his autograph. I mean that that just kind of shows what a big deal he was, and and the cool factor. And something you you know, something else you raised just now about the strike the next year. You know, it strikes me as we're talking about this right now. One of the special things about the '93 baseball season was it was kind of the end of the innocence of baseball in a way, you know, it was so much changed after that. And, and Camden Yards represented that and Ken Griffey Jr. represented that, you know, and then, um, and then of course the next year was the strike and then you had the whole PED scandal and, and Ken Griffey Jr. broke down and, and, uh, and I, the sport really hasn't been viewed the same way since that, that 93 season. Mike Trout, you can make an argument that he's just as talented, if not more so than Griffey, but, I mean, he just doesn't have the, he seems like a wonderful guy, but you know, the charisma, right. As you know, the, the endorsements, the, the cool factor that Griffey yeah. has, you know, and um, again, I mean, he's a ball player and, you know, um, that's not his job, but Griffey did, was a showman, you know, in, in that sense. And one other guy I want to bring up, who I'm so glad you included in the book. Um, and this is a Yankee fan of me coming out as well, but uh, Jim Abbott is a guy who, also went to University of Michigan, my alma mater. Um, Jim Abbott is a guy who I feel has been kind of lost to history and, uh, you know, is one of the great, I, I think one of the great heroes of our lifetimes in sports. I mean, he is, he is such a wonderful example for, for people of all ages and disabilities and everything. And, and so can you talk a little bit about Jim Abbott and, and of course his special day that year? And he, uh, you know, pitched, with his left hand and he, it was kind of hard to explain, you know, on a, on a podcast, but the maneuver he had with his glove and how he was able to, you know, switch hands was pretty incredible. And he had been a solid starter for a number of years for the California angels, you know, in the um, late eighties, early nineties. And he was um, pitching in New York now and uh, the Yankees were having a so-so season. They were kind of treading water, you know, a little bit above 500 in the race with Toronto. And anyway, on Labor Day weekend, he pitched the no hitter. Um, and, you know, the chapter is really the focus is on the Blue Jays and, you know, them winning a back-to-back title and Joe Carter and so on and so forth. But I thought it was really interesting that in that particular month of September, um, Jim Abbott, you know, threw a, a no-hitter. And then at two weeks later, Curtis Pride, who was born um, legally deaf, uh, made his major league debut in Montreal. Um, so I just thought for, again, you know, for those with disabilities, um, it was a pretty inspiring month when you think about it. Um, I mean, there were some other highlights in the month, like I, you know, I mentioned Dave Winfield got 3000 hits, you know, George Brett, Nolan Ryan, they're retiring Mark Wooden, I think had 13 RBIs in a game, some, you know, some, you know, interesting things and great pennant rates in the NL West. But I really do, from my perspective anyway, that it was really interesting, you know, those two accomplishments. Yeah. And as you mentioned, of course, the, the Blue Jays uh, won that World Series to win back to back uh championships and that, that they had a stacked lineup that year um and that and that phillies team that they played in the series was had a lot of fun personalities so that that was that was exciting but in the interest of time we're going to move on to basketball um oh boy man this is tough as a, you know as you know i'm a nick fan and that that uh that 93 that 93 eastern conference finals was brutal um Man, so 
Of course, that was the, that was the, the Bulls' first three-peat, the first of two three-peats. And, and what were some of the obstacles that they had to overcome as a team to to complete that three-peat that year? It was kind of funny just because, like, you know, this was my first year really following, you know, the NBA, and I thought it was so exciting, you know, and everything. But when you, I watched, like, some documentaries on it, for the Bulls, when they were doing interviews, looking back, it was like, oh, this again? Like, another run through the, you know, NBA, the grind of the NBA season? Because they had just won two titles, right, against, you know, uh, the Lakers and then the Trailblazers. And it really was a grind this season. Um, they won 57 games, no small accomplishment. But, I mean, they coasted in the regular season. They were not playing balls to the wall um, in the regular season. You know, Jordan and Pippen had just come off the, you know, Dream Team experience in 92 you know, right on the heels of uh, winning against Portland. So they really didn't have much of an off season. And of course, you know, they were the team, right, for all intents and purposes. So it was a grind. And um, I mean, I think in this series in particular was very fascinating for one, no other reason, just that, you know, Jordan's gambling um, activities came to light, right? For You know, just to give a little quick summary, um, before game two of the Eastern Conference Finals played at Madison Square Garden, it was learned that Jordan had spent the night before in Atlantic City, uh, you know, the casinos, Grand Valley Resort. And, um, you know, it, he was reportedly there as late as 1130. Some people swore he was there even after that. So you do the math and he just basically got a short little nap before the morning shoot around. And then you know, it was compounded by the fact that he didn't play um, particularly well in game two. They both lost them, you know. The Knicks went up to nothing, but I think it's just interesting because I think in today's society, this would not, I mean, first of all, like it would have been in real time, you know, there would have been social media would have lit up, you know, and, and I think also just, there was a stigma around gambling back then in the early nineties, mid nineties, that's not around today. And I just don't think it would have been quite as big a deal um, just because, you know, it's like, Ooh, you know, going to a casino, you know, it's like, it's just not something that people really, you know, make into a, a, a whole you know, front page news. Uh, but back then it was. Uh, gambling was not legal outside of Las Vegas, you know, Nevada. So, yeah, it was a huge story. And, you know, the Bulls came back. And as you you don't need me to tell you, you know, they won four straight games and went on to um, beat the Suns in the NBA Finals. But, yeah, I think that series in particular was a grind just because the players, you know, came to Jordan's defense. I mean, they were really annoyed at the media for, uh, you know, especially the tabloids, the Post, the Daily News in New York for, you know, prying into their personal lives. And yeah, I mean, it was a huge distraction, and but obviously not that much of a distraction in the sense that the Bulls won the next four games. Yeah, in retrospect, it's one of those things where it, it was a huge story at the time, and and it was it was completely meaningless. It meant nothing. Like it was just, it was, that the amount of attention it got for what it really was, was, is ridiculous. Um, I mean, he took a limo with his dad and a couple of friends. He didn't drink and drive. He wasn't, it was legal in Atlantic City. You know, he wasn't doing anything illegal. Um, I mean, he was, you know, he could, this was Michael Jordan. So it's not like he could go out to a, a club in New York City, right? You know, I mean, or, you know, go to a restaurant or whatever. He would get mobbed and, you know, he just wanted to get away and, you know, whether you like him or dislike him or fall in between, I, it probably wasn't the end of the world that he was doing this. Yeah. Um, and and so, of course, that was the conference finals. And then, and then they met the Suns, Charles Barkley and the Suns at, in the finals. And and Charles was the MVP that year. And he was playing at a at just a phenomenal level. Um, you talk in the book a little about how Michael kind of softened Charles up, how he befriended him to soften him up. And um, that's something that, 
you know, a few years later, Jeff Van Gunny um, accused Jordan of doing that. He did it to people on the Knicks and people around the league in general. Do you, do you think that was really Michael's intention? I mean, do you do like do you think he and Charles were friends? Do you think he was just using Charles? What what do you think was going on with Michael with that? I think they were friends. I think um, you know, I think obviously from the Dream Team experience, which Barkley was on, um, you know, they got pretty close. And yeah, I, I think there was a little bit of um manipulation there. You know, he supposedly he went golfing with Barkley. He he bought him some nice jewelry that week, and you know, the idea was that if Barkley was charging through the lane, you know, he would kind of take it easy on him or, you know, whatever. And I don't know. I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, you know, Jordan was just better um, than Barkley. And it's like, you know, in 91, the marquee matchup was him and Magic Johnson, but Magic was at the very, very end of his career. And um, the next year it was Clyde Drexler, who was just, let's be honest, not at the level of, of Jordan. So, yeah, I mean, I think this was really the first time he had a formidable opponent in the NBA finals. Because uh, as you mentioned, Barkley was MVP. He was probably the second best player in the world at that point. Because you know, Bird and Magic were pretty much on the the cloud. Bird was retired, and, and Magic had retired for the first time. And um, so, I think these were the two best players. Um, so, yeah, I think there was a little bit. But at the end of the day, I mean, I think just Jordan was so much more dominant, um, you know, than any team or any player in the league. That I think it was just inevitable he was going to win a title that year. Yeah. Um, and then of course, after that season, um, in October of that year, I guess Michael shocks the world and retires from basketball. And then a few months later, he announces that he's playing minor league baseball and the, the big, you know, the, obviously the big sad event in between is his father died and, um, in in really horrific fashion. Um, do you think Michael walks away from basketball if his father didn't die? It's a great question. Um, I don't think so. I think the baseball thing, you know, as I kind of point out in the book, was, you know, an homage to his father because his father's favorite sport was, in fact, baseball. Um, You know, I think the pressure, you know, just being probably one of the two or three most famous people in the world was building on him. And and baseball, in a sense, was, I guess, kind of a break from that, Um, especially playing in the minor leagues in Alabama. Um, But I don't think so. I think, you know, that was obviously such a tremendous uh, shock, that tragedy, that I think, you know, while he was exhausted and, you know, and like I said, hadn't really had much of an off season the year before. I think he probably would have kept playing basketball in, in the 93, 94 season. Um, had that not been, you know, such a traumatic summer. Yeah. But you never know. I mean, no. And, um, the fourth major sport hockey. Yeah. Um, I remember that year, uh, I grew up on Long Island. I was an Islanders fan. And I, don't, I don't really follow hockey anymore, but I, I did then. And I lived about 15 minutes from Nassau Coliseum, and I used to go to a lot of games. And um, and the, the Islanders faced the Penguins in the playoffs, and the Penguins were two-time defending champs, and, and the Islanders knocked them off on, on David Volek's goal in Game 7. And that was like euphoria at the time for a 16-year-old hockey fan. Um and of course, the last team standing was the Capitals, and it was fascinating to me. I'm, I'm sorry, the Canadians. Um, it was fascinating to me that uh, discovering in your book that that Jacques Demare was illiterate. Yeah. I had no idea, and how how was he able to coach a professional hockey team 
without reading and writing. Dr. Mayer was their coach, and he um, he did grow up in a very dysfunctional household, as I point out in the book. His father was incredibly abusive, and both he and his um, his wife did die at a young age. And so he, you know, Dr. Mayer really never got much of an education. Like I want to say, he left school for good at like thirteen. So he was working all throughout high school and then, you know, or what would have been high school in his college years. And I mean, it was very embarrassing, you know, as I, I kind of mentioned in the book, like, you know, he would um, he'd have a piece of paper and, you know, a note or a, or some, you know, kind of like um, play drawn up and he, he couldn't read it. And, he, you know, he'd pat his um, he'd pretend to be like very like have poor eyesight. Right. And he'd pretend like his glasses weren't there. So, you know, I think it's something he. He didn't come out with until long after he left coaching, and he he did confide in some assistants at the time, and I think some people in his inner circle knew, um, and certainly some of the players did. But he credit to him, he kept it a, a big secret um, to the public, and I mean it just was not easy, you know. Like I think a lot of the communication obviously had to be verbal, um, and he had to kind of you know pretend and make up some excuses um, for when there was notes on paper and whatnot, and. What was it that made that Canadian team special? Patrick Waugh. Um, for those who don't know or aren't big hockey fans, he was, you know, probably one of the top five goalies of all time. And um, just in short, I mean, that team won 10 straight postseason games. After losing their first postseason game, they won 10 in a row, which is, I mean, really, when you think about it, a pretty remarkable run, which means your goalie has to be perfect in 10 overtime sessions, which he was. Um, I think it was like over... I don't even know how many minutes of hockey, but, you know, it's pretty impressive to not let up a goal in, in 10 straight overtime periods when you think about it. I mean, just in terms of the depth of the team, you know, they they had a lot of depth. They didn't have the star power. You know, L.A. had Wayne Gretzky, whom they faced in the finals. But, um, you know, Patrick Wall was really the, you know, the, you know, the backbone of that team for sure. And as you note in the book, uh, and, and as you mentioned, of course, that was the last – Canadian team to win a Stanley cup and um, which is crazy. I, as I said, I, I don't really follow hockey anymore. And, and I was shocked to, to read that. Um, is there a reason for that beyond, beyond the obvious fact that there are many more teams in the United States than there are in Canada. And, and it's just, is it just chance or is, is, is there a reason beyond that? No, it's a good question. Um, I mean, I think it's a couple things. I think, you know, in the past, what, 93 was 28 years ago, you know, you've had a lot of new teams, right, that have come into existence um, and been tra- and, or have been transplanted to southern regions. So like the Dallas Stars, the Carolina Hurricanes, Tampa Bay Lightning, you know, and, and um, yeah, I mean, just the sheer number of expansion teams has made it more diluted right around the league. And I think a lot of it, like anything in hockey, is by chance. Um, I mean, the Canadians have not had very good teams for the most part, you know, in the, in the 21st century, uh, nor have the Maple Leafs for that matter. Um, the Senators have not been very good. The Canucks, you know, they used to have Pavel Burry, have not been particularly good for the most part. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's just a lot of it, again, the, you know, the sheer number of teams. And I think in 93, the fact that the Canadians were playing the LA Kings in hindsight was pretty interesting because the Kings were not this franchise that people were expecting, you know, uh, to become a dynastic team, which they were in the early 21st century. And um, it was just kind of new, relatively new speaking, having um, hockey, you know, in Southern California, you know, or south of the Mason-Dixon line. And obviously that was just a uh, preview of what was to come. 
Yeah, the the whole the whole Kinks thing. I mean, it was kind of like, uh, you know, it, it's Hollywood, and they got the big name in Gretzky, and it was it was like you know the fashionable thing to do. But of course, nobody thought of LA as a hockey town and or, or as a hockey team. Um, does it, does it, does it, like Magic had retired, and the Clippers right. were still not very good. That helped a lot too. Right. That's right. Um, did does it bother Canadians that that a Canadian team hasn't won the cup in so long? Is that something that matters to them? I think so. I mean, I've been to Canada about 15 times <laughs> in my life and um, just to go to Montreal, Toronto, whatever. And, you know, I mean, I can just give you one short anecdote. Like I was, my wife and I were at a restaurant in Toronto in June and there was a, um, an electronic clock. It was literally counting down to the, the seconds until the Maple Leaf season, the puck would drop, you know, in coming October. So I, I think it does, you know, it's got to, I mean, um, I mean, most of the players on these teams, well, let me put it this way, many more players on these teams we've mentioned in Dallas, Tampa, Carolina, Anaheim, are Canadian than American, you know? So I think it's gaudy. I mean, and again, like now we're talking 28 years, so it's yeah. a fairly lengthy drought at this point. Yeah. About the book on a whole, and again, for 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 our listeners, this book is really exceptional. It's, it's um, you could tell... David's passion about about all these sports comes through in the books, but they're also extremely informative and and really uh, shine a light on on what was going on in the sports world in, in general in 1993 and, and why that was such a special year. So I definitely recommend this. Um, I, I wonder, David, what what was the hardest part about writing this book? Well, I, I think for any book, you know, like this, securing interviews is always a challenge. But then on top of that, and you know this very well getting non-cliche material from some of the interviewees was very challenging um and it, it's it was very hard i think you know because you're talking to a lot of people about you know teammates that they really admired whether it was a gretzky a troy aikman a joe montana so i think it was very hard while people were willing to talk it was it was pretty challenging to get personal or even you know anything kind of controversial um the other thing also is that you know a lot of these people I wrote about in events, certainly Michael Jordan, Ken Griffey Jr., you know, the Cowboys have been written about over and over again. So finding a new perspective, I think, was was very interesting. And then lastly, the other challenge was there was so much material, right? Like, and I, you know, kind of estimate that I think probably 15 to 20 percent of all the information I got, I actually ended up using just because like there's so many, you know, you're talking about different teams and different cities and different leagues and everything. And hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of articles. And I think being able to, you know, reduce it down to material that I thought was actually interesting, you know, it was a pretty, you know, intensive process there, weeding things out. Okay. I'll, I'll get you one last question and I'll get you out of here. But first, uh, let me just say again, the name of David's book is Pro Sports in 1993, a signature season in football, basketball, hockey, and baseball. My final question for you, David, is one I like to ask all of my guests. What is your all-time favorite sports book? Oh, boy. Um, the one that always comes to mind is Teammates uh, by David Halberstam. Um, as a lifelong Red Sox fan, um, that book naturally I kind of gravitated to because it goes into like the um, end-of-life story of Ted Williams, Johnny Pesky, Bobby Doerr, Don DiMaggio. So I guess it's kind of, I've you know obviously read hundreds and hundreds of sports books, but I think that's the one I would probably have to answer just, you know, right away. Although I will say Jeff Perlman's Boys Will Be Boys about the Dallas Cowboys was a really entertaining book and one that I, I used quite a bit for research. Um, 
I mean, that's a really quick read if there ever was one. So I would say those two, but I lean towards um, Teammates by David Halberstam. Yeah, you can't go wrong with Halberstam, right? Right. Yeah. All right, David. Well, thank you so much again for coming on the podcast. Um, again, as I said before, David's book is, is excellent. Um, I highly recommend it. And uh, good luck with everything, good book sales and everything else going forward. Thank you very much, Paul. It was a pleasure to be on, and I really appreciate the uh, the opportunity.